Hello and welcome to Doing the Fringe, the podcast where we get to know the people who put on the world's largest arts festival. Lauren Nicole Mays is a Blackpool born and bred actress currently living in Manchester. She was awarded a full scholarship to Italia Conti Academy, where she studied musical theatre for three years. Shortly after graduating, she started working in musicals on cruise ships before returning to the UK and starting work in TV. She played Gina King in The Bay and Chantelle Wilder in Coronation Street. Now, Lauren is taking her one-woman play, Dear Little Loz, to the Edinburgh Fringe. The play started life as a monologue for Burn Bright before being developed into a one-act play. Dear Little Loz explores love and the price we are willing to pay for it. Thank you very much for being here, Lauren. I first wanted to ask you about your early acting life. You went to theatre school and then quite quickly started working in musicals on cruise ships. What was it like to enter that professional theatre world so quickly? Was it everything you expected? Did the training lead up to it? Or was there still a big jump into that professional world? Um, I suppose, I think I graduated in the June, July, and then I knew that I'd got the job um kind of working uh, on this musical we're doing a world tour for carnival um on the ships so i knew i had the job by like september and um, so it was very fast i think my main concern graduating i was so worried um because you know you go to drama school you go to stage school if you want to call it that and you that three years a third year as well it's so penultimate and everyone's so hungry to work and i I feel like I've changed a lot since graduating. It's been a while ago, but I was so hungry, so hungry, verging on like, you know, toxic hungry. Um, so when I got this job, I was just relieved. I remember um, even that five weeks of me just working in London, kind of doing, you know, street work in terms of flyering and working for bars. And I was just thinking, I can't do this. Like, I need to get a job. So when I got the job, it was a more of a relief. Um but yeah, I went to South Africa to do rehearsals and the training, you know, really did prepare me for the job, but in a way it didn't because no amount of training I don't think can, can it can put you in a good stead for the job, but it was a whole different world. I did a month's training in South Africa and yeah, I was, there was two new girls um, on the job. Everyone else had done the musical before and I very much felt like the new girl like and I was treated like the new girl and but it was life-changing that first job because doing um eight shows a week on a ship at the start when you're doing like your um first embarkment phase it was crazy I'd never I'd never felt that level of intensity and we had to be so diverse in what we could do in the show. There was so many, because you're on a ship, not only is there the musical, there's the other acts like the contemporary show, etc. So, um, yeah, it did prepare me. Italia Conti did prepare me, but I, it nev- I never thought that was the route I was going to go down. But because I was so hungry at the time, I'm so thankful now that I did it. But looking back, I don't know if it was the right decision, but I'm so thankful I did it because I trained as a dancer from like three years old in Blackpool. So I think I needed to get that out of my system because I would have always felt as if, well, what did I do it all for if I don't get to dance and do musical theatre now? Yeah, that does sound intense. The idea of travelling to another country to rehearse with a huge cast of people sounds like it could be really sort of overwhelming. Um, When you first thought about going to theatre school, where did you see yourself ending up? Was it musicals? Was it drama? Was it TV acting that interested you? I think at the start when I was auditioning, um, 
all my time at kind of my local dance school in Blackpool, I was always told that I was the actress because no one did act in there. So because I was quite brash and boisterous as a child, people would be like, oh, give her the monologue in the show, she'll say it. But I think I went the other way because people always said, you'll be the actress. I was like, no, I'm going to be the dancer. I'm going to be the best dancer. So naturally, I would say I am a performer, but I wouldn't say my technique was the best at dancing. But because I worked so hard, um, and not in a boastful way, just because I am that sort of person, I've got quite an addictive personality. So if I put my mind to something, I'm like, must do it. So I trained really hard at my local dance school to become, to get to the level of where like the natural, really good dancers were in their technique. So when I went to Italia Conti, I thought I would do musicals. And it wasn't until my second year at college at the end of the first year, you do something called like your assessments and um, you could either do a monologue or you could write something. And I and I wrote a monologue about this uh, young girl and she'd got pregnant and she wanted to give the baby away. And I wrote it. And at the end of the year, they chose eight of us in second year to go on to do um, a play by Carol Churchill. And I got the lead in it in my second year. And that I don't know, that was just a game changer because I love dance and I love musicals, but that was a completely different feeling. And I felt for the first time ever, probably in my life, like I was taken seriously. And I think I'd always been like the funny one or the brash one. And I got this lead part and I was like, people take me seriously. And yeah, something switched in me and it became a bit of an addiction to be fair, like that adrenaline of being in a play and, you know, being someone that I wasn't but still but I still had like my isms and um yeah the things that made me tick and I think from then on from second year into third year I kind of I didn't want to do musical theatre anymore I was like I want to I want to be an actress um and I want to be taken seriously as an actress and then when I graduated and realized you know how difficult it was and then I got offered this job because obviously my all them skills that I'd, I'd learned in musical theatre they were coming through and I was like, I'll be silly to turn down this opportunity. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it happened. And there you mentioned how you first started writing. So I'm interested in what sort of excites you about writing and, and what did you want that work to achieve when it was put on? I think initially I never started out writing thinking that I would be a writer. I suppose a lot of people do say that. I think subconsciously I was writing a lot. Um, I'd I'd always have a notebook with me and I would always write down things about where I'm from um, and like the people who have raised me. I'm from a really large family of women, um, got a huge family on both my mum's and dad's side. And I think moving to London so young, I couldn't believe like how other people lived. And that sounds extreme to some people, but for me, I was like, these people don't seem like my mum and dad. They don't look like my mum and dad. They don't look like my aunties and uncles. They don't speak like them. and we're just so different the environment was so different so I think writing was a bit of like my way of saying putting my stamp on things and saying this is me this is where I've come from I think when you're from a town you want to escape the town so much it's like I'm not going to live in Blackpool I'm going to be bigger than that but actually when you go somewhere else you become really passionate about it and if, if anyone is rude about where you're from you're like what but you can be rude about it. Um, so yeah, I think writing really stems from me caring about the environment that I've grown up in and the people who have raised me. And I think that was my way of kind of just writing a few things down and, and experimenting and expressing myself. And I think it probably wasn't until 
about two years ago, just before the pandemic really, that I started writing and thought, no, I want to put that, I want to like look at the, the form, the structure and try and like tell these stories in the best way possible. I think a big thing I've learned in writing is once you start taking yourself seriously, other people start taking you seriously. And, you know, two years ago, I would have never said, I would have never been confident to be like, I'm a writer. But now I'm like, I'm a writer. And and other people, in fact, see me first as a writer, which I find crazy now. Once you'd finished up on the cruise, you returned to the UK and started working in TV. You played Gina King in the Bay Series 2 and Chantelle Wilder in Coronation Street. How did those roles come about? And what was it like moving from the stage or the cruise ship to the screen? So yeah, I came I came back and um, I kind of got rid of my agent at the time. They were brilliant, but um, I basically had a long chat with my head of acting at Sally Conti because he was really upset that I was going on the ships when I told him. He was like, no, what are you doing? This isn't a good move for you. But I'm very stubborn, so I thought I know best. Um, and then I came back and like came crawling back to him and was like, oh God, um, I really want to do straight acting. And what do you think? And he was like, that's fine. But um, I think you need to go into it with a clean slate. So I moved agents and, uh, well, I, I left my agent. I didn't have an agent. And I went to a place called Manchester School of Acting. So I auditioned there. Quite a lot of um, well-known Northern actors and actresses have gone there. So I auditioned there and I went there for about a year. They just do, you just pop in and do weekly classes. Um, there's a lot of working actors who still go in there. And um, I got a new agent uh, who I'm still with now, Lee Morgan Management, and he kind of said to me, you're going to part your musical theatre stuff at the side for a bit. And I took it off my CV and I went in plain, um, plain sailing, like there was nothing on my CV apart from Italia Conti. And I think now it's, I feel like it's a bit different. Um, I feel like, you know, the crossover between musical theatre and TV, it works and so it should because, you know, what you do in musical theatre is truth and it's storytelling. And I think a lot, it can be dismissed and it shouldn't be. Um, so yeah, but I changed agents. I kind of went in with a plain CV and I had my, I had, I'd had a few auditions but for TV, but nothing of size really. And then I had an audition for The Bay. Um, and it wasn't a named part at the time. It was kind of just blank. And I went in, I went in on my lunch break. I was working at a gym at the time. Went on on my lunch break, did it, got along with everyone really well. But really, I didn't think the audition went well. I think I felt like everyone just had a bit of a laugh. And I was like, oh God, we've just had a bit of a laugh. And I don't think I did a very good job. And then I was teaching singing to some, uh, to a bunch of kids that I teach. And like three weeks later, and I got the call to say I'd got it. Um, so I was playing Gina King in the Bay series too, and I just couldn't believe it. I know people say like, oh, like when you get that first call, but I really couldn't believe it. I was like, how, how has this happened? Um, which seems so dramatic now, but at the time it feels like a huge deal and it was a huge deal at the time. And then I remember going to the reading for the Bay at the studio, ITV studios in London. And the day before I got a call saying, you've got an audition for Coronation Street. And for me, I love Coronation Street, but it, like now it feels different. But at the time I was like, 
you know, the thing is from being from the north, if you say you're an actress, people are like, are you on Corrie? And you're like, no, shut up. You don't know how hard it is to get an audition for Coronation Street. So then when I got it, I was like, what? Um, but my audition was not for the character I ended up getting the role for. So I went in and I had like three lines and it was for a nurse. And I remember getting the audition and I was like, I was gutted because I was like, no, what? Like, I want a big part. And not that... And I'm not dismissive of, like, the the one lines. Like, everyone is there to tell the story. But, you you know, as actors, we're greedy. We want more. Um, so the audition for Coronation Street was on the same day as the read-through for The Bay in London. So I went to London, did the read-through, left early, came home, went to Manchester, had a four o'clock audition for Coronation Street, went in to do these lines. You get the lines on the day for Coronation Street most of the time. And I messed all the lines up. And the director said to me, put the script down and say what you want. And I did that. And then I got a call the next day saying, we don't want her to play that part, but we wanted to play Chantel Wilder in Coronation Street. And yeah, my mum and dad, they were over the moon. <laughs> and what's it like when you get cast in these shows or you, or you even get callbacks from auditions? Um, I'd imagine it'd be quite exciting, but it must also be quite daunting. Um, you've got to not only do yourself justice, but add something to these shows that thousands and thousands of people watch and and are kind of household names yeah it is it is daunting I think I think getting the auditions later on in terms of years after I'd graduated so these I auditioned in 2019 for these roles and I'd graduated in 2014 you know if you told me that when I graduated I I would have been like, yes, uh, uh, brilliant, I'm auditioning for them. But because it had seemed like such a long way, and I think I felt like I'd really earned it, and my mindset was just so different. I wasn't I wasn't going in desperate, you know. I wasn't like, please have me, how I would have been when I was graduating. I think I went in and was like, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do, you know. I also know what my strengths and my weaknesses are and played to my strengths. And at the same time, it was very, very, very nerve-wracking, but I look back at that, those auditions, and I think it's amazing. Once you get one job, once I got the bait, it gave me a level of confidence that I hadn't had in myself before. So then when I went in for the Coronation Street job, I understand what people say. Like, when, when you're on a roll with jobs, you don't overthink it. Whereas I feel like after the pandemic, there's a huge gap for everyone in performing. And now, you know, I think I would... I am more nervous when I go into auditions because... When you're on a roll with getting auditions, yeah, you you take it in your stride. And I think that's the best way to be because what other people see is you in a relaxed state doing your best work. Um, so I think Coronation Street and The Bay came at a really good time for me, as in, in like my personal life, because I was, yeah, I was in a good place. And I think that, sh- that shined through. Having had experience of working on the stage and also on the screen, do you have a preference for one over the other? Do you find uh, you're naturally suited to one or the other? Or will you just decide what you're doing next based on uh, where your career is and what opportunities are there for you? Yeah, I think I think I'm like, obviously work's hard to come by. um, But at the same time, I'm a big advocate of no is your superpower and you know you are allowed to, I think we get told at drama school don't be too picky and I think my personal outlook on that is that you can you can be picky and you know you want to do things that with a team that makes you thrive and that you're passionate about I think I think for me I thrive in theatre in terms of 
my heart is like, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's the live reaction or, yeah, that it's different every day or every night. Um, I like spontaneity. Um, but then television, there's something about feeling so small on set and everything's very intimate and then watching it um, or, or knowing that you're playing a really small part in such a big story so you might not feel like your scene's important but in the grand scheme of things you're helping tell that story in some way and I and I do I do like that so I do love them both I don't think I have a preference but I think if you were to say like what would my gut reaction be it would be theatre. So we heard earlier about how you've written for the stage, um, but since then you've also gone on to write for the screen as well. You were selected as one of the finalists in the Sky Studios and Box of Tricks Screenplay Award. Um, so I'm interested in why you wanted to write for the screen as well, um, and maybe what are the sort of differences, and, and what, what does TV allow you to do that theatre doesn't, and vice versa? I'd say the differences are it's not so heavily focused on dialogue, there's so much you can tell and show through the stage directions, through the location. Um, and I think also the form and structure of TV. People like to say there's no rules, but I think, you know, the rules are there to be broken. And they very much are. But the the way that it's helpful in TV is you really need to know those rules. Because when you get stuck right in episode two you need to know how to, to get yourself out of that mess or to find the conflict in episode two to then come full circle in episode five or six. And I think um, in television, I I feel a little bit more restricted, but I think that's because I ha don't have much experience in it um, at the moment. And I'm obviously very early on in my writing career. But I think, yeah, television, I do find a lot harder but I think my mind works visually when I write. So that's why I like television, because I'm like, we can snap to this and snap to that. And then you'll see a walk in here. And whereas in a in in theatre, you know, you need to be you need to be on it with your timescales. You can't just snap to something. They have to see it there and then. So whether you give that information in dialogue or, you know, whether you use audio in the play or visuals, you need to. It's just, they are two very different mediums. Um, and I understand why some people say, no, this story is for theatre or this story is for TV. Because I think you have to be respectful of the medium and tell the story in the most, most truthful way possible and whichever form that takes. Yeah, which, whatever's true to the story. Dear Little Oz is the project you're working on now. It's a one-person play that you've written and are also starring in when you take it to the Edinburgh Fringe this summer. Um, so I'm interested in what's your experience of the Fringe? Have you taken a show here before? Have you been to visit? Have you seen shows here before? I've never been to the Fringe. Everyone's like, you are mental. I said, yeah, it's going to be intense. I mean, I've been to Edinburgh before, never been to the Fringe. Um, and it's always felt like I've never been able to go. And I don't think and Izzy won't mind me saying this, I don't think I would have chosen to take the show to the Fringe because it was never something I would have considered financially, first of all. Um, it's just so expensive and I'm so excited. I feel so lucky to be going. I feel so grateful to be going. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, everyone should be able to take their show up there. So how can we, yeah, we, we say that it's for everybody, but it, it's not because we need to make it accessible. But that's a different story. But I'm very excited to go to Edinburgh Fringe. But yeah, I've, I think naivety is bliss. 
So I think maybe it might stand me in good stead that I don't know what I'm getting myself in for. It's really interesting that you mentioned the money side of things and the accessibility side of things because um, this is the sixth recording I've done for the podcast and I think this is also the sixth time that topic's come up so it clearly is a big issue that everyone is talking about. Definitely because we, you know, I'm from a very much working class background and um, we, you know, you see these shows or you see people speak about television and theatre and we say we want more working class stories or we want more diverse stories and it's like it starts at the top how do you ever think you're ever going to hear these stories that are happening in the world that, that where, where things that are happening on stage and TV should represent people in real life? We're never going to see that at the fringe if you don't make it accessible. Somebody cannot, from a working class background, just get up and say, you know what, I'm really talented, I'm a writer or I'm an actress or a comedian or an artist theatre maker and take my show to the fringe one second I'll just go and have a look in my bank balance it's not going to happen and people I think we have to be more honest about other ways that we can make it happen whether that be I don't know they do a night at Soho Theatre and they they open it up for submissions and then people showcase a 10 minute piece and if and if people producers commissioners with a lot of money like what they're doing they go to that artist and say would you like to develop this show how can we collaborate together how can we take this to the fringe because at the end of the day there are people with money out there which is brilliant you know that's what that's what money's there to be used for so let's have a conversation about who has the pot of money and how we can take it how we can you know make make theatre more accessible and that's in a roundabout way I know it's not as easy as that but it starts with a conversation it can be very easy once September rolls around and we have the power of hindsight to look at a show and say it was obvious it was going to be a success. But from where we are now, a few weeks before the fringe begins, there's no certainties. Um, it is a risk creatively and economically to do the fringe and the prospect of doing 21, 22, 23 odd shows can be quite daunting. I think that's the thing. I think it is such a risk in terms of it's a risk producers taking a risk on new writers. But I think we have to somewhere, whether you don't take a risk on five shows and then take a risk on two shows, you know, if you know five shows are going to sell really well and you're, you're um, a theatre company and you're commissioning those writers, you, take, you don't take a risk on five and then the other two take a risk on. Because it's when, it's when people take the risk that we find new talent um, and new artists and I think a lot of people look at the fringe or I always did and I was like oh my god she's just had a sellout show and and but then we also have to look at their background and where they're from and who their mum and dad are and who their aunties and uncles are and that's okay but we have to be honest about it otherwise there's people sat at home writing a play thinking oh right brilliant I'll take my show to the fringe and I don't need to have much money behind me etc you do it costs a lot of money and we have to be honest about these things. The project you're working on now, Dear Little Loz, began life as a monologue for Burn Bright. Uh, since then, you've developed it into a one-act play. Can you explain um, why you wanted to develop it and what was important about this idea? Why was this the one worth developing? Yeah, so um, it was a monologue and it was commissioned by Burn Bright Theatre Company and they commissioned five writers, but they didn't commission a piece. So we basically had to write around a question or a provocation that was what you wish you'd said, what you could have said, and what you know now. So that's where Dear Little Loz came about. Um, and at the time, 
it's a story basically set on the premise she goes on a first date and she gets followed home and and the experience of that and what she wished she told her younger self so then once I'd met Izzy um, I got put in touch with Izzy through another writer that I've been working with and she said can I read your play which was Baby Nun XO which is a play I'm working on about postpartum psychosis she was like I love it and I was like yeah this really isn't the play that I want to that I want to do um, I'm working on this with Box of Tricks and Sky Studios but I have another idea so I sent her my me performing this monologue um, that they'd recorded for the commission and she was like I'd lo- I love it like what are your ideas um, about developing it and I said actually like from doing the piece from doing this love letter to the younger version of ourselves um it's made me really look at how we are as children and as we come into adulthood we really start understanding about like why we are the way we are no one is you know i am the way i am for no reason um and it just started making me look at the attachment theories um identity class and I kind of came to Izzy and was like really honest about kind of everything that I'd gone through as a child and where I'm at now as an adult. And I said, like, these are my ideas. Do you think it would work? And she was like, well, write it and I'll let you know, basically. So I went away and, and wrote the show and then it's changed a lot since I sent it her um, in the first place. But yeah, that's kind of what made me want to write it. But I definitely think, if I'm honest, there's been times where I've been like, I don't want to do this. And I think, and Izzy knows that too, in a good way, I've come full circle, because I think it's so difficult writing something that's, yeah, that's really scary for you to tell. And Baby Nun, I didn't have that experience with. So I was like, writing has been so therapeutic and wonderful. I'm so excited. And then writing Dear Little Loz was really uncomfortable and... I was I thought if this is writing then I don't want to do it um but yeah I'm not in that headspace now so that's a good thing. So Izzy Paris is your producer and I know you've worked with her um to help shape and focus the play to sort of what it is now how useful is it to have someone who you can come to uh, with these creative ideas and, and be honest and open with them and then um accept their feedback? Yeah I think it's invaluable really because you can't see when you're in it and that's so true, you're blinded by it, you're all consumed by it. So when you don't think something's working and someone's like, no, this really works, and I'm not a very trusting person, so I'm like, be brutal, be honest, tell me if it doesn't work. Um, but then also at the same time, when something doesn't work and they tell you, it's like, oh God, does that does that not work? And then you can see it in a whole, from a whole different perspective. And I think... I, we were having this conversation yesterday in rehearsals, actually, and I said, I can't imagine, and I know people do do it, but I don't think, personally, I could ever get to the best place for the show if I was directing, producing, writing it, acting in it, you know. I don't even always recommend, like, with Baby Nun, I was like, I don't want to act in it, I want to be the writer in the room. So for me to be writing it and performing in it, I wouldn't want my head to even consider having another hat on, because... You can't see it. You you know, when things are jarring, you just can't... It's infuriating, really, because when someone else says it, says what's missing or what is um, jarring, it's like, oh, why can't I see that? Um, but it's been invaluable. But at the same time, I think it's been really scary because I think imposter syndrome is real. So when you're working with someone, normally people say, well, if someone else likes it, that must give you validation that it's good. But even then, I'm thinking, maybe we should get six more opinions on it. Um, 
but it's not that I don't trust Izzy. I very much trust her. But I think you're always wanting to make the show better or the best it, it can be. But yeah, I don't think I could have got, I don't think I, I would have, I don't think I would be telling dear little Lars if I hadn't met Izzy, to be fair, because I just don't, it's helped me get through the difficult parts of being like, I don't want to tell this story. I don't want to tell this story. And then actually, how can I tell this story in a way that allows me to tell the truth, but also throw a few curveballs in there so that I'm not so bogged down by the truth. Do you have an idea of what a successful fringe looks like for you personally as a creative, but also for Dear Little Laws as a play? I think if I can come out of the fringe with a clear understanding of what I want Dear Little Laws to be, and I think, of course, the show's ready to go. Um, but I mean, is this... The fringe is a playground, basically, I feel. There's no better place to try out new material and if I can come out the fringe with a clear understanding of what I want to say and how this show can be developed or whether I want it to be developed I don't know at the moment um yeah and if I survive it I don't really have any expectations for it and that's not like me because I'm a bit of a control freak so normally I'll be like I want this to happen I want this to happen but yeah for the fringe I, I really want to try and enjoy it to be honest I think it's been such a long process with this show it's been hard, it's been emotional, it's been difficult, but then it's also been really rewarding. So I think I want to try and just enjoy it, experiment with it, and yeah, see if this is if this is the best form to tell the show in. At the moment, obviously, Loss, Little Loss and Big Loss uh, tell the show. Um, but who's to say that? I don't know. The grandma can't tell the show in future life, or the mom or dad or whoever. I don't know. So yeah, that'd be my greatest expectation of the fringe should just come out with a deeper understanding of kind of what I want this show to be. Perfect. So my final question, when and where can we see Dear Little Laws this year? You can see Dear Little Laws at the space at Surgeons Hall from the 5th to the 27th of August at 12 o'clock every day, apart from the 14th. Laura Nicole Mays, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. One of the things that's becoming really clear from doing these podcasts is the need to give new writers, new actors, new creatives a space to tell their stories in the way that works for them and that should be what The Fringe is all about. 